you sort of start asking yourself, why am I doing this, you know? I'm James Zug, and this is Outside the Glass. Later this month, the Grasshopper Cup will be played in Halle, Sex Zizvi, in Zurich. It's become the largest pro event in Central Europe, famous for its crowds. For those who don't make it to Zurich, Johnny Williams is the voice of the Grasshopper. He's worked as a teaching pro in Switzerland for almost the past 23 years, and starting in 2014, he's been a commentator for Squash TV at the Grasshopper, a role that has now led him to commentating at other pro events, particularly in Qatar, where I get to see him every fall. Williams runs a popular summer camp in Zurich. Just watch out on his regular hikes in the mountains, as he tends to have too much faith in his camper's abilities to read the very few trail signs out there. And if you want to know anything about squash in the smallest country in the world, Johnny can give you the scoop about Liechtenstein. He grew up in Melbourne. He spent four years at the Australian Institute of Sport during its heyday, where he set the record for more 400 sprints in a row than anyone, including Jeff Hunt. On the Pro Tour, he reached 15 in the world. He also suffered from glandular fever, which took him off the tour for three years right in his prime. So here's a good conversation about resilience and mental toughness. Uh, all right, so let's start uh, with Australia. Uh, so you grew up uh, in Australia. Where, tell me about your childhood and, and how you came into squash. I started uh, playing squash at um, the age of three, I reckon, because um, my father was a, a squash player. Um, played, you know, let's call it the, the second division in Melbourne, which was pretty good at his best. Uh, he was quite naturally gifted. I'd even say probably more naturally gifted than I was with a racket because uh, he played tennis as a youngster. He was semi-finalist uh, in the 60s as an under-16 uh, schoolboy in Victoria. So he was quite handy. Um, and he's always loved tennis. Uh, but then he got into squash. Uh, I can't remember the exact details of how he got into it, but he went down into the... He went to a squash centre and, and saw that he was he was quite handy with the racket. I think he was sweeping courts as well to earn some money. So that's that's might have been that, that was typical of the way that people got into into squash. Wow. A bit like Hashim Khan, you know, sweeping courts, waiting for the uh, yeah, the ball boy exactly waiting for the, um, the the army guys to stop playing and then right. and then practice in the dark. Right. And a couple of years later, suddenly he's beating them all. They're going, "Who's this guy?" You know? <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, he, he got into squash, and then the centre, which is not which is a great way of describing Australian squash in a nutshell, <laughs> the centre where I grew up and played, where he actually started working, was built in 1973 mm-hmm. by two Italian immigrants, the, uh, the Italian Italianos, came over from uh, Frank Italiano and Tony Italiano, they came over to, uh, to Australia with their families. They built the squash centre. Uh, one was uh, an accountant, one was a plumber. So one guy did all the handiwork around the centre, the other guy did all the finances, you know. And then, of course, all of the, the kids of the family, they grew up there, they play, all played squash, some better than others, and, and, they, and they all worked there, you know. So it was a real family business. How many, how many courts? Uh, it had nine, really? if I remember correctly. Yeah, nine, exactly. Where was it? In the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, yeah. uh, where I grew up. Yeah. And... Uh, my dad sort of um, found his way there and he became a coach. And then my dad was good at, um, at sort of, you know, he wanted to promote squash as well. So he got uh, a so-called state one, you know, I mean, the, the, the highest divisions in Melbourne in those days were state one, state two, state right. three. So that was the whole of the region of Melbourne. Uh, we call the Metropolitan District. And then you had the suburbs split off and then they had their own leagues. 
I mean, these days they'd be lucky to have a few leagues which cover the whole of Melbourne. But in those days, you had you know eastern districts, northwestern districts, southern districts. I mean, I, I still in my mind I've got like when I in the mid '80s when when squash was really at its boom peak, and I was like 12 years old. Junior leagues. There was a club in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne called Doncaster, and they had 26 junior teams. 26 junior teams of four players. Maybe with a reserve as well, and their yeah. their junior you know membership must have been around 200, 250. and and they were one of the powerhouses. But there were others, you know. And I'm only talking about one club. So start crunching the numbers, and then yeah. and then you can start to see why Australia created this dynasty, which obviously on the back of Jeff Hunt and Hisco and Nancaro, yeah. um, it really gathered a lot of uh, force with. The Rodney Martin, Chris Dittmar, Chris Robertson era, actually, you know, like that, that mid '80s through to the right. '90s. Right. Um, but unfortunately, just as the greatest era probably in Australian squash existed, <laughs> it was the beginning of the end. Right. You know, financially things were starting to change in a way in Australia where it was not viable for centre owners to to keep a hold of these courts. You know, right. so <clears throat> sorry, they started selling up uh, those a lot of those centres and, and the. The real estate that it was on, people were building apartments. There was a lot more money to be made, and the real estate boom began. Add to that, outdoor sports um, started to get stronger. Basketball, soccer, and squash in Australia was was you know that's a thirty year decline basically we're talking about you know, and they're still to this point right now while we're talking you know I mean Stuart Boswell is leaving here. He's the the head coach in Qatar, and I wish him all the best. <clears throat> but he's got. He's got a mountain of work in front of him because until they find a way of connecting uh, the the elite performance together with the grass, grassroots stuff, I really struggle to see how Australian squash is going to change over the next yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, you need the, the base of the pyramid thriving. You need 26 teams coming out of a, a single club for the elite to, you know, that, that's the only way you get elite is by, by having a lot of kids at the bottom. Yeah, exactly. And we, and we had... I had a great um, coach. I had a few coaches and a few diff- who played a few different roles, but I had one who was like my grandfather, you know, Eddie French, uh, dear old soul, passed away in 2014 at the age of 82. And he, he was the one that guided me and was always going with me to tournaments, you know. So you had a lot of people like this around who, who were, were really, you know, life coaches for you as well as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, keeping me on track through a very difficult period of your life where you can easily get distracted by... Yeah. Um, tempting things, you know, as a teenager. So, uh, and and then I had a, a mentor uh, by the name of John Larkin, he, whose son actually played PSA for quite some time. Josh Larkin, yeah. and he got to sort of around sixty, maybe fifties in, in the world ranking. Uh, and John and John Larkin was um, he's a Mormon who's travelling as a missionary, and he's just done a three year tour out in the Pacific. Uh, and he was he had an incredible influence on on my psyche and the way that I developed my thinking as a sportsman, you know about being mentally strong and mm-hmm. disciplined and starting to write you know, all my training down in a diary and all this kind of stuff, which I still do right to this day. Although, yeah, I still write down all my bike sessions <laughs> in my diary. Uh, I don't know why, but... Uh, do, you it's... Ever, do you ever look at it? Or is oh, that, yeah, yeah. You, you go back and look and see what you did last year? Yeah, perhaps, not so much, but the, the, last time, the last time I did it was... Uh, it's a good question, actually. Two and a half, no, three years ago almost now. And I was playing, uh, my, the last time I was sort of playing, I would say, good competitive squash in Switzerland, I was playing in the A-League there, and my club, we won the, uh, the, the, the championship. 
and I had an integral role in that to play as the team manager. We had Borka Golden, Sebastian Vernick from Holland, myself, um, and a guy called Jonas Taylor who's just taken a job in the States. Uh, so good luck to Jonas when he gets over there. And yeah, I, I did a lot of training in the build-up to the playoffs for that. We have a playoff system, so it's semis and final. And I did do quite a bit of extra little sessions on weekends because I was still coaching 25, 30 hours a week, you know, and with, you know, with the health problem as well. So I had to manage myself quite well. But that three-month period, January, February, March, was the last time I was, I was really doing quite a bit squash off court and all this. And there was a couple of times where I, I sort of looked back through. I thought, gee whiz, that's, that's quite a bit of work on top of your job. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that, was the, that was certainly um, the professional sort of PSA side of me came out in, right. in, that, in that period. Right. I really wanted to succeed. I think there was something inside of me which kind of knew it maybe the last time that I can do it because of the, the, this, this thing I've had with IBS. Yeah. And it turns out that, I, yeah, it, it has been. So I'm glad that I, I gave it one last push and at the moment until... Until further notice, I'm sort of being put on the right. uh, reserve bench, you know, from, from right. c- that kind of competitive playing. But that, 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 uh, that coach helped you when you were a kid, uh, you know, with that idea of, you know, keeping track of everything and sort of journaling about what you're doing and, and how you're feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. You know, um, mm. It started with uh, doing 400 metres. I mean, Jeff Hunt's 400 metre programs yeah. were, were, you know, were the, were the trend. So it was like, follow the trend if you want to be a champion type thing and... I was um, a very good junior in Australia. I won a lot of Australian junior championships, so I suppose I was um, tagged to to then go on and, to the and institute. yeah, exactly go to the institute and, and 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 you know with with that kind of discipline that I was displaying, I was kind of tagged to be somebody who should then perhaps be yeah. um, a future top ten and all right. that kind of stuff. So, and I think in the first few years of my squash career, I, I, I did struggle with that a bit. You know, I felt like there was you a kind of you, pressure when, there. You said you started when you were three. Yeah, but like, were you? When did you first play your first tournament or whatever? Were you six, seven? Uh, first league matches started at the age of seven. Yeah. And first tournaments, uh, 81, so I was eight going on nine. Yeah. And did you immediately have success in those league matches and tournaments, or did it take a couple of years before you got tagged? Two years, yeah. Two years, um, and then under 11 runner-up in Victoria to Michael Joint. Another guy's in the States. These names are going to pop up through this uh, podcast for sure. So I wish... Uh, Joyny's a great guy and, and he's been in Detroit for many yeah, years. And you probably... You yeah. may have bumped into him. So, yeah. And he was like... Uh, throughout my junior career, funny we come across uh, Joyny because he was like a big bogeyman. I couldn't... I didn't beat him till I was about 17. So... Uh, and he was coached by John Larkin as well. And um, I can still remember uh, coming to a, a training session with John Larkin when I was about 13 or 14 years of age watching Michael do the last of 30 sets of one minute ghosting, one minute off. And he was 15, you know what I mean? So that's why I say the dynasty that, we, that was going in Australia and purely by numbers, you know, the, the cream rises to the top yeah. and then the, the systems that were in place to point us in the right direction, get us training hard. We had great, you know, great uh, uh, people to look up to in the form of Ditmar, you know, who's doing his... Versa climber sessions twice a day, and all that, you know, and, and he was, you know, he came across as a guy who was pretty, pretty hard and pretty tough. So uh, there was a, there was these sort of influences were very very strong, yeah. and it inspired kids like Michael and myself to really so want he, to train he, hard. He was ghosting one minute on, one minute off, thirty sets. I, I'm not. Right. This is not a joke. I mean, he was he was 15 years of age, and 
if there's kids, you know, I, I assume there'll be kids in the US that are listening to this yeah. saying that's not true, that can't be true, but it was, <laughs> it was, and 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 he had John Larkin standing on the back door on a, on the traditional hardback court. There was no glass wall, yeah. just saying, "Come on, Michael, twenty six shots needed in this set. Come on, all the way." You know, it was it was not airy fairy stuff. You know, it was it was, it was hardcore. Yeah. Well, I was talking to Jeff Hunt last night, and uh, it's a, uh, you famously were, were doing the uh, the four hundreds. So tell tell me about about that specifically. Was that when, when did you get to the institute? How old were you when you? Seventeen, nineteen ninety. Yeah. And yeah. You, gra- you graduated from high school. Uh, last year at high school at uh, McGregor High in mm-hmm. Brisbane. So I did oh, uh, you, you, you change schools. You changed uh, schools. Yeah, for the last year, which. Uh, in hindsight, I, I, I kind of, uh, I, I mean, now it doesn't, you know, it's not really an issue at 47 years of age. <laughs> Things have moved on. But there was, a, perhaps in the, my 20s, I kind of regretted it because I'd obviously grown up in Melbourne with a, with a big group of friends and, what, and, and whatnot. And there was a time where I sort of regretted not just finishing it at Vermont High in Melbourne. And, and when, all the, when I see all the reunions and stuff like that, you sort of think, well, yeah, it would have been good to, to do that last year there and finish it. But. Uh, um, yeah, that's that's how it panned out. You know, I made that decision, and I was I was following the squash dream. So, right. but uh, it was. I, I mean, we got. I got to the institute in January of 1990, and Jeff Wallstein was the fitness coach at that time, and 400s were were on the program. 400s. You done, you done I'd done it before, so I was already pretty well um, versed in, in in running 400s, and and especially in running this this classic Jeff Hunt thing of doing 75 on. 45 off, meaning you run 75 second 400, you got 45 rest. And uh, I think... Now, were you doing it on a track at, at the Institute or on a field or... We did it on a grass uh, track, which was alongside the 400 metre track. So it ran around the outside of it. So it was a little bit... Um, uh, I can't... Yeah, exactly. It was a little bit wider. So therefore, the 400 metre sort of um, uh, distance... Was not the entire length of one four hundred meter, obviously, because that uh, perimeter was a little bit, bit, a bit, a bit bigger. But uh, was it marked out like for the squash guys? Like, yeah, it was marked out. This is a, well, just that's the start and that's the finish, you know. So with a cone or with a no, just a, I think the line on the ground. It was just like a line, you know. The, the the grass was so worn away at the finish that you could see where pretty pretty clearly where it finished. Where everybody had vomited. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but. We were doing, uh, early on, I can remember we were doing three sessions a week of 400 metres and immediately, quite quickly after doing, you know, having that background and I had a very strong natural VO2, so that was um, something that I was always pretty good at, you know, running, uh, at, even at high school, running 1,500 metres, 3,000 mm-hmm. metres. I ran a 3K at school uh, in, in the school competition in 9 minutes 33 when I was like 16, I think, so, you know, I, I was already doing uh, good middle distance type running, you know, so, and we were doing 2400s on that, you know, on that uh, rhythm, 75 on, 45 off, and then, uh, yeah, the target of Jeff's 30, 400 metres was, was like a red rag to a bull. Was that record, or was that just like what he would do every time? No, it was, it was just what apparently Jeff had done. He'd done it once. He'd done it once, and, and that was his, the biggest volume that he'd ever achieved of doing the 400s. He'd done, I think he did 20, 24 a lot, but one time he'd done 30. And then there was How a, many would you do on, uh, three days a week? Uh, we built up to 25. 25, yeah. <laughs> and were you, is this in the morning or in the evening? Mor- mostly morning. It was early. We, we, they, we tried to get it in before you know this was in january february march i mean it's 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 the rainy season but it's very humid it's it's subtropics yeah. so 
it's getting up to 30 degrees quite early in the, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. So you so, did this at 8 in the morning? Yeah, 7 in the morning, yeah. yeah. So we, we, you know, get up early and, and get a little bit of food into you and not too much light breakfast at 6 and, and then make your way over and get warmed up and straight into it. So, but then Scott Spillane, who was um, a player who was in the Institute as well for a short period of time, not a name that, that anybody would, would know. He, he never really played a lot of PSA, but he'd done 31. Uh, he, broke, just, he broke Jeff's record. Yeah, he was a very good runner and he did 31. And that was just to sort of uh, one-up Jeff Hunt's uh, number. So, yeah, that was, like I said, that I was, I was very keen on, on sort of having a crack at that one day. And then one day after doing that 25 program, just yeah, I just said, okay, I'll do one more and, and, uh, and, and then nailed it, you know. But I felt, to be honest, I felt like I could have kept going. But uh, you, you sort of start asking yourself, why am I doing this, you know? Because it doesn't necessarily uh, make you quicker in a stop-start multiple sprint game like squash you know so right yeah and uh and, and so that you never you never again attempted more than you know you, you never said oh why don't i come out tomorrow and do 40 or no uh in 91 and 92 when i was and 93 when i was still at the institute we moved to doing 70 second 400s with 50 second rest uh, we decided that and, and i felt that that was right for me i wanted to do them quicker you know and uh i felt that i had it in me so then we started to try and do um 20, 20 times, you know, running 468, 69, 70, and then having 50 seconds rest. And then even moved at one stage to doing 800s, so do five 800s in about 222 to 225 off four minutes. So it's the same rotation, same rhythm, five 800s, and then, and then just straight into 400s 10, 12 times as well. So, yeah, they were, I mean, these were... These were Different times, uh, different game, if, if you have to remember, with squash. I mean, we're playing, you know, with, with the rackets, with the smaller heads and heavier, um, much more uh, head, racket head weight. So the game was completely different. Still playing on 19-inch tins predominantly. The, the lower tin was just slowly making its way in. Uh, the balls were different as well back in 30 years ago. You know, they bounced more. So um, if anybody's watching the YouTube clips from years gone by in the archives... You, you do have to factor that in as yeah, well when you it looks when, so different yeah, yeah. yeah so much slower yeah, yeah. exactly it's just yeah. if, if the players if even if the best sort of fast place fast paced players of today and name, namely Rami Ashore would be right at the top of the list um, playing Shabagi at his best or even Gawad or uh, Ali Farag if they had to play with those shoes those rackets on those courts with that ball in those conditions, it would, you know, they'd be trying to jump up and volley on it, but they just wouldn't be able to do the same with the ball. It wouldn't right. work, right. you know. It'd look interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, so you, uh, you did the Institute for four years, three years, five years? Four, 1990 inclusive to 1993. Wow. Yeah. And it was Heather Mackay there? Was Jeff there? Like... Jeff was there throughout that, all the way through, and, and he was still there after uh, I, I finished there. Heather was in the beginning. Mm. And uh, someone asked me about Heather McKay. We, we can come on to that. That was an, it's a good, a good point. And uh, and Ken Hisko was there initially, yeah. and then I think maybe for two, three years max. Then 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 he was he he moved on. You know, Rodney Martin came uh, after my time because Rodney was still playing yeah. in '93, '94, '95. Yeah. So yeah. he sort of started mid '90s and, yeah, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what about Heather? Someone asked, it was, there was a mention the other day, I just heard it sort of murmuring about, like, you know, Heather Mackay, uh, because Ian McKenzie was saying, that, you know, Heather Mackay's arguably the greatest player that ever existed, and that's, I, I, I'm certainly not going to counter-argue that, because yeah. uh, 16 years unbeaten, 
she won the last, uh, the first, the inaugural World, world Championship, but yeah. uh, you know it's only bad luck for her that it didn't exist before that because she probably would have won sixteen. Well, she already, re- she'd already retired, and she came back to win it just to say, like you know, I, I did win the world title, but you know she she had already moved on. Anybody that's a bit older in the US, sort of my age or your age, James, yeah. that's been around squash for thirty years. Heather was over in the US, yeah. played. Um, she played the hardball. She, played, yeah. she won everything there. Exactly, and she, and she was great at racquetball. There's two things about Heather that I think would have enabled her to fit perfectly into, you know, into that environment at the top with the, with the top Egyptian women is she was very, very dynamic in her movement and very strong. She hit the ball tremendously hard, but she had good touch as well. So she had all of those things. That's why she was just so dominant over everybody else. But she had, um, and, and that's the, the most uh, unbelievable thing, she had this indomitable spirit. Like Even when I arrived at the Institute as a 17-year-old, uh, I was at a level where I think you know I was pretty much equal, let's say, to the best female players that were probably playing at that time. And Heather was fifty, but she was still difficult to beat at fifty. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, you know, you we played games with her. She said, you know, you want to have a game, and oh come on, this will be. I should be able to do this. You know, I mean, she's fifty. It shouldn't be. I mean, it was it was game on. You know what I mean? You had to work to win, and. Uh, I, I, maybe the, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there was probably days where I even, you know, it was. I, I don't recall losing to her, but I certainly there could have been a day where I dropped the game, you know, and in a best of three, I won two one. So Heather Mackay for me, yeah, I mean the, the the Egyptian women having watched the way that they've changed today's game, that it's so dynamic and so quick. Uh, all of the the El Taib El Shabini El Walidi in particular, and Nora Goa, uh, I'm so impressed with the way they play, but. Heather Mackay, for me, would have that she would have fit right in there. Yeah. She would have loved it. Yeah, yeah amazing. Yeah. yeah, she was uh, she was incredible. I mean, the whole Australian, you know, from her in the seventies and eighties. I mean, it was just an incredible uh, group, and uh, and a lot of interesting personalities. And, and you sort of, you know, as a kid watching all those. Incredible players. I mean, you, and then you, and then you became one of them. Like you, you know, joined the tour and, and, and headed off. So what, what was it like heading off? As a, you know, you were night, you know, twenty, twenty one, twenty two. When you eighteen. When no, when you when you when you when you sort of left the institute and. Uh, you know. Well, I was in the institute. Um, so you were playing PSA. Playing PSA, yeah, exactly, yeah. And then the I parted ways with the institute at the end of ninety three, mm. and that was. Um, you know, that was uh, a call which was, you know, after four years on the tour, they or three years on the tour, 91, 92, 93, they obviously, the expectations were high and that was fair enough because we had such a good stocks of players coming through and behind behind me there was David Palmer and Ricketts and Boswell. These guys were already knocking on the door. So right. you were expected to perform and my performances, uh, you know, unfortunately were not good enough to that stage. I think I was around about 50 in the world after three years on tour, which, I mean, you know, 21 years of age, probably these days people would say, well, that's a good start. But there's a lot more depth on the tour now than what there was then, to be fair. You know, so um, uh, I, I'd, had, I'd had my go there. They, they'd given my chance and they probably felt like we've done all we can for him. Now he's got to go out into the yeah. big bad world on his own and, and exactly. see what he can do. So, right. um, and then I went to Germany. Yeah. I uh, found a base there where I did a little bit of coaching. It, it became very clear to me that I was going to need to support that lifestyle with wanting to travel all around the world. With uh, I didn't have, you know, I didn't come from a wealthy family, so I needed to earn some money somewhere. So, and I was always sort of um, 
someone who liked to teach, I always felt I actually enjoyed going on court and trying to teach people how to play the game and, and bringing that across, and that's stayed in with in, in me till this day now, right. and has become my life. But that's where it sort of started, 1994, in uh, Oldenburg in Germany, in the north of Germany. I started doing a few lessons, and uh, it was my introduction to coaching in German, I suppose, as well, which I do to this day also, 25 years on. So it was good, and uh, <clears throat> and I was able to just pocket a little bit of money away. Yeah. And then in the first half of 94, things went quite well for me. I started to get some good results. I was training very, very hard as well. I was, I suppose you could say I was quite determined to show the Institute that they made a mistake and all that kind of thing, a normal reaction, um, an emotional reaction. And uh, I, I really wanted to prove a point. And I had some, some good results. Uh, April, May, around that time, I won a, t- a small tournament in Barcelona. I won another one. I won the Danish Open. I beat Angus Kirkland in the final there. Um, and then, unfortunately, I contracted glandular fever or mononucleosis. And uh, that stopped me in my tracks as it turned out for three years. It was the beginning of uh, sort of a, you could say, a, 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 I've had a, a career that was a little bit plagued by yeah. these types of illnesses, fatigue-related illnesses right. uh, and this kind of stuff. And, and I think even, you know, the stuff I, I have today is somehow probably yeah. related to that, you know, so... Yeah, I got glandular fever and I waited the the, uh, the, the six to eight weeks that they advise you to, yeah. you know, just lay off and don't do anything. Right. I did that. Were you still in Germany or did you... No, I went straight back to Australia. Yeah. I was planning to go back to Australia anyway. And uh, the next big event was the World Open in Barcelona, mm-hmm. uh, which Jancher ended up beating Marshall in, in the final. But... I sort of, uh, in my mind, I had big plans for myself there. I'd set myself some pretty good, big goals, talking about the, what was going on in my journal. There was a lot of activity, and I felt that I was ready to, to make a move there. You know, And I just moved to 49 in the rankings in June, 94, so that was my best ranking. And I never could have you know, foreseen that, that I was going to be out of the game for one and a half years completely, suffering from this, this horrible fatigue sort of post-viral syndrome where I just was flat and I couldn't do anything and I yeah it was it was yeah it was a really tricky time for me you know and I spent a lot of time at home uh down in the dumps a bit searching uh for for answers I I, that was the first time I tried uh, being a vegetarian Mm -hmm. from end of 94 till mid 95 I think Mm -hmm. I did uh, and slowly but surely, my my health at at a younger age as well. I think that natu- what I've learnt now is the body uh, at 21, 22 years of age, the natural uh, mechanisms which kick into gear when you when you're ill, you've got a lot more sort of strength there at that age than what you do have when you're perhaps early 30s or even early 40s. You know, so I was lucky enough that yeah, the body managed to to find a way through it, and together with having a good regime of good diet and, mm. and good discipline and, uh, and... But you weren't allowed to do anything, right? No. Like, you weren't allowed to, like, do more than walking. No, and I kept getting, I kept getting like, what I have now. I kept getting these the light, sort of, low-grade fevers and colds constantly, all the time, almost on a, on a month or two-month basis. So even if you thought... <coughs> sorry. Even if you thought that, oh, perhaps now I'm seeing a bit of daylight get another cold all the time and you'd be out for, and it wasn't just one or two days it'd be like four or five days and in particular when I tried to travel I remember I tried I went up to, to the my father lived on the Gold Coast and I went from Melbourne up to the Gold Coast spent a week in bed just the flight and the effort to to get you know to get up there was was too much you know and uh, 
so it was very, very difficult having to take that much of a step back. Someone who was, you know, obsessed with training, obsessed with fitness, obsessed with right. uh, having having a, uh, a well-oiled machine, you know, to to be a, a, a high-end sportsman. You know, it was it was just. Well, Peter Marshall had something similar. Or, I mean, I don't remember. You know, I read his book and I watched him and talked to him. He had he had that, or did, it was chronic fatigue, or I mean, it's all I don't know what. Absolutely, he just. I don't think that he had a clear cut case as I did with with getting uh, Epstein Barr mm. or glandular fever. He never yeah. had that. He was just fatigued and really struggled with it. Made a, a, a comeback where he amazingly got still to I think number twelve or ten in the world. 10, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with that, you know, still having the lingering effects of that, yeah. and then eventually it just took its right. toll. And, and you know, it's, I think at twenty nine years of age, he was done. You yeah. know, and. I managed to get it through until 31 and then uh, had a reoccurrence, not of the same thing, I don't think. I, I picked up another virus in, 19, in 2004 called the Coxsackie virus, which is also known to cause post-viral related problems. Um, and I had a, a, a long-term sort of fight with that from the age of 31 until 34. So I had the, a good uh, seven years from 97 when I came out of the initial... Uh, fatigue problems. So how did you know when you, were, when you were out of it? You just like started training and you could do it? And... Yeah, I, it was 1996. Um, I was knocking around in the state one, the, which is the highest mm. level in Melbourne. Uh, I was somewhere in the, you know, in the top 10 players, I was somewhere in the middle, which meant I was way, way off where I had been at, at the, you know, inside the top 50 in the world and before I got ill. And uh, I knew it, and it was very frustrating, but it was just down to the fact that I was, I was just not fit enough. You know, I was not able to sustain the type of game style that, which, which I was you know, renowned for being a, a good counter-punching runner and, and good retrieving and all that. And in 1996, I had a good phase where I finally was able to train about <clears throat> four months without interruption. And that was the key to, to getting back to a better level. And then on the back of that, I started to beat these guys that I'd been losing to in Melbourne and and there was a there was a guy by the name of Philip Lama who was like a benchmark for me I kind of knew if I can beat him because he was he was giving me lessons every time we played in in that time but he'd been a former top a uh, world number 24 and I I would say he was still playing a level which was around about 50 60 mark at that time so I kind of knew if if I beat him in a proper match then I'm ready to to really go back on tour and then that happened at the end of 96 early 97 and then by mid-97, I'd sort of organised everything and then I was on my way again and then back on tour. Came back to Europe, based in Europe again. A similar right. situation in Germany. Different town. Different town, but connected with the same job that I'd, that I'd had in Oldenburg. So a, a, a new owner had taken over the centre, but it was uh, the town... Uh, the owner was the owners were from Osnabrück, which is about two hours drive south of Oldenburg. So I went there, but they also owned the other centre where I'd been before. So that was the connection. And then, um, wow. uh, you must have been so excited to be back. Yeah, it, it was. It was. It was a relief. You know, at first you just um, appreciate the fact that you're healthy, and day to day you wake up and you feel better, and you don't have those, you know, the lingering. Uh, Swollen glands, sweatiness, all this kind of stuff. That was the problem with the, with the glandular fever. It's just this ongoing, I say, internal thermometer problems. Your body temperature just doesn't regulate properly. So, yeah, that, that was the most challenging aspect because I remember even when I started to feel better and then I was starting to train better and get stronger, 
there was this lingering sort of voice in in the back of me saying you know the more we the, the more we up the intensity is there going to be a setback am I, am I going to feel you know the swollen glands again uh, if I if I got a little flu or something like that it was like is it going to turn into something worse so that that was quite difficult the first um, two years back on tour 97 98 and then in 1998 I had what I definitely would class as some kind of little sort of setback for a few months where those symptoms sort of popped up again. I didn't do much for, for a good two-month period and then luckily the body just sort of reacted and responded in a good way and I seemed to come out of that and then I was able to go on and basically I would say, yeah, I was pretty pretty good from 98 until 2004 and, and it turns out that you know my best um, time as a player was 99 and three through till about 2002 that was where I was sort of top 32 for a good three years I think got to my best ranking of 15 and and spent um, 18 months sort of uh, inside the top 24 Um, but getting you know getting back to what we talked about when when I was younger I ultimately there was this goal there to be a top 10 player and and, and then really push on and be a title contender so um, I never managed to do that for whatever reason I wasn't you know I'm the first to put my hand up and say you know I wasn't good enough um, there was always, you know, you bump into people that sort of say, well, your career was set back, you know, perhaps too much by having too many problems with these types of illnesses and things like that. But I think that um, I had every chance to uh, go on with it when I got to the top 20 right. and I was in good form there and uh, I felt good about the way I was playing. So I don't think that, you know, that people should use excuses as to why they didn't make it or this, that and the other, you know, due to injury or illness or anything like that. I had, I had a chance there. I didn't manage to, to take advantage of that opportunity. So as a coach, it's probably taught me that you, you have to make sure that um, all of your pieces, when they're lined up, that you need to really just keep looking at improving yourself all the time and, and don't stop doing that. As soon as you think that you've got everything uh, sorted out then that's that's when you become vulnerable you know mm-hmm. in terms of, especially at that level because everybody's trying to hunt you down and it's it, it's an absolute dog eat dog world up there as we're going to see outside the glass would like to thank our producer grant irving our social media manager laurel holly and all our loyal listeners who have reviewed and rated the podcast shared their enthusiasm for it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and most importantly, have spread the word by talking about Outside the Glass with their squash buddies.